0: This is Michael Lee Stollard, and you're listening to Leader Lab.
1: So who are you and what do you do?
0: My name's Mike Stollard, or uh, online I'm Michael Lee Stollard, because there was a Mike Stollard and a Michael Stollard already published.
1: So the domain name for Michael Lee Stollard was better? Gotcha. Yes. (laughs)
0: It was unique. (laughs) There you go. And uh, I focus on helping leaders create culture, Um, create a culture that makes everybody feel like part of the team. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that, just why that's important, how it helps us manage stress, how it makes us more productive, happier, and healthier versus cultures of control and cultures of indifference that are the the contrast to a connection culture.
1: Hmm. And and so connection culture is the name of the new book although
0: I it,
1: I would have wanted to call it what you two can teach us about running a great business because there's <laughs> some great in, in, info in that and as a as a lifelong YouTube fan I I've been a YouTube fan since before I could think because my older brother was one and he made me uh, so, as a lifelong U2 fan, what can leaders learn from uh, how, to, how to shape a great organization? What lessons does U2 have for big business?
0: Well, U2 you, you is a fascinating story. You know, I, I've been doing this, David, for about, it's a second career for me. I spent most of my career on Wall Street. I've been doing this now for about 12 years. And uh, it was actually a guy who was playing drums for the show Hairspray on Broadway who came up to me. He's a friend of ours. And he said, you should take a look at what the rock band U2 is doing because they do what you talk about. And uh, it's a great story. So I looked into it, and I was fascinated to see that U2 really started as a band. They were just teenage boys in Dublin, Ireland, in the mid-70s. And when they started, um, people laughed and booed at them. They were not very good. In fact, I saw recently that Bono said, uh, we started playing music, I think he said, in 1977. Well, the band was actually in existence before that. Now, he he didn't say this, but I'm reading into it. And I'm I'm wondering if he thinks maybe they weren't so really playing music before that. The quality was not that great. But you look at the band's trajectory, and they went from this band that people laughed at, not very successful. They stuck with it. They have been together for what going on five decades and uh... all their adult lives and most most bands don't stay together and now they have received more grammy awards than any band in history in recent years they surpassed the rolling stones one of my favorite bands record for the highest revenue producing concert tour in history and when you look at many of those metrics u2 is wildly successful no question one of the best bands in history. And how did they go from a band that people laughed at to one of the very best of all time? And it really is a story of a band that had, I would give a lot of credit to the whole band, but also to Bono, who is a leader among leaders. It's a partnership type culture. But what you see in Bono is he communicated an inspiring vision and lived it. He values people and he gives them a voice. And by doing that, he creates a sense of connection, community, and unity. So they they feel like a family, a band of brothers. And it's allowed them to really stick together to perfect their music over time. And I know you've talked about this in your writings. Just the the research that shows it takes 10 years of intentional practice and coaching to really become an expert on anything. When you stop and think about that, it takes a lot of perseverance. Um, It takes uh, some humility to take coaching. Uh, It takes support to get through the inevitable obstacles that come up. And when you have that relational support, it helps you uh, persevere on that journey to achieve perfection. And I think when you look at the details of YouTube's story, that's what's happened.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating example and one that like like you said we don't often see in the business world or in organizational life as a whole people that committed to each other that connected with each other, uh, et cetera. In fact, what's what's rare is we probably see it in the business world more than we see it in the music world. So the fact they stand out even in the music world even far far more so. And and so inside of that is this idea that like okay awesome, uh, I I'm not Bono C- cool life I don't know that I would trade for it. Um, but I'm not Bono, but I want to benefit from that. So how do I, as as a leader, or actually, let's start, if, if I can throw you a curveball, let's start before the leader level. Like When I'm in a connection culture, what does that feel like and what do I get from
0: my leaders as a person? I'm glad you asked that question. That's a great uh, second question to what we just talked about. Because in, in this, I have to say, when I saw that mergers were not working on Wall Street, there was always a rational plan and it was difficult to achieve the plan, to execute the plan, because the parties didn't connect. And it led me into this whole area of what is a great culture that helps two work- organize. Organizations come together. And to my surprise, what I found was not really what I was looking for. What I found was just how important it is for people to feel connected to one another as opposed to feeling unsupported, left out, and alone. Now, let me put that in the context of a merger. There's usually one party, and I've done uh, post, one of the things my company does is we do post merger. Uh, consulting to help two organizations come together and there's usually one party that's perceived in the merger as being dominant and it's important for that party I went through the Morgan Stanley Dean Winter merger and which became a civil war so that was one that didn't work out But there's usually um, one party that's perceived as dominant and it, it's so important for the that party to be sensitive to how the other party feels to make them feel connected and you use the wrong words uh, the wrong behaviors. You go in with the wrong attitude and you can guarantee it's going to sabotage your post-merger success. But that also applies to new employees coming in, how important it is for to help them feel connected. If they don't feel connected within six months, they stop giving their best efforts. They stop aligning their behavior with organizational goals. They stop communicating fully. There's just a whole host of behaviors that sabotage a business's performance. So this feeling of uh, helping people feel like part of the team, to feel included, to get them in the right role so that they are being affirmed for the contributions they're making. It's really critical from a psychological standpoint. And yet it's somewhat invisible because we're talking about relationships and how people feel.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what's funny is we have, there's a whole industry from uh, for for people who essentially don't feel like they're in that Culture, right? The Dilberts, the office spaces, the etc. Right? We, I think we all. I, I wanted to throw you that curveball because I think we've all resonated with that, right? And some of us have been lucky enough to resonate with a connection culture, right? But um, and and you know that sort of tangible feeling. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna take my hypothetical employee hat off and put my hypothetical leader hat on. Aspiring to be Bono, if I'm a leader, what do I do to create that culture? I know I need it to make mergers successful. I know I need it to make a company successful. What do I do to help create
0: it? Well, we have a simple formula. We just think managers are so busy today. They're overwhelmed. They have performance pressure. And most leadership models, although I, I find them helpful because they're very exhaustive, but they're overwhelming, and uh, you know they're very good for HR people. But for leaders, who you, you, it needs to be something that's simple, that's memorable, and that's actionable. And that's why we came up with this: communicate an inspiring vision and live it. Value people and give them a voice. But the most important of those three to really start off is valuing people. And so we call that the heart of a connection culture. So taking the time to get to know the people you're responsible for leading, you know, what have their, and starting with uh, their their work histories, you know, what roles have they had that have really been engaging? What types of cultures have they been in, in the past? You start to get a sense for their strengths and their values. Having those conversations are very helpful. And then also starting to branch out and find out what are their interests outside of work? What are their aspirations in life? Who's inspired them? Uh, those types, types of things just help us get to know them and build even greater trust. But I'm a big fan of uh, answering questions and really connecting the people up front, getting to know them and helping make sure we get them in the right role and that they have the resources and encouragement and tools they need to be successful in the the role you're expecting them to perform with excellence.
1: So there's, in the book, there's a ton of different examples of leaders and organizations beyond just you two. And especially on that valuing people side, from the, the traditional business world, what was the example, who who is the one example or maybe one or two examples that you like the most of that valuing people element?
0: Uh, I think uh, Ed Catmull at Pixar is, um, is definitely part of his values. He values community. He values people. Um, he wants to create a culture at Pixar where people thrive, and um, he's very intentional about it. A- and yet, it's interesting, in his last book, which I believe you have also uh, talked about, right? Um, mm-hmm. The uh, And now I'm blanking out on the name of it all. <laughs> Creativity,
1: Inc. It's a great, great, you, great title. Inc.
0: I you should know, have you, thought of it. He tells that story. You think of that story that um, Catmull tells, and I've been out to Pixar. I mean, I know uh, John Walker, who is the producer of The Incredibles. And, um... It's, it's a culture where they're very intentional about um, valuing people. It, it's interesting in their brain trust meetings, that one of the things that Catmull wrote was just how incredibly kind they are. I think they're very honest <laughs> in, in uh, providing constructive criticism, but they're also kind and affirming. And, you know, that's very much comes out of who Ed Catmull is, his character. And it's amazing to see that he has, um, with John Lasseter... Uh, not replicated, but he's exported some of the things that make Pixar successful into Disney animation. Although it's a different culture, it picks up on some of the things that have worked well at Pixar and it preserves their independent identity. But I I love the example in the book where he talks about how surprised he was that um, after Toy Story that um, the there are three communities inside Pixar. There's the creatives, You know, the the artist types, the writers and uh, animators, there's the technologists who who make it happen from an animation standpoint, and there's the production people, and they were bringing in production people um, as independent contractors on the first movie, and those production people were forcing people to communicate um, according to the chain of command, and it created a great amount of frustration, and so the technologists and the artist community started to become abusive and disrespectful and frustrated. You know, they were acting out because they were just frustrated that things were slowing down. But this wasn't on Catmull's radar screen. He didn't discover it until later when he wanted to bring the the producers in and make them full-time employees. They didn't want to take those jobs because they felt disrespected and the culture was toxic to them. They were proud to be a part of of a, a great animated movie, but the culture was toxic and it wasn't something on his radar screen and it really surprised him that he had to focus on culture first and so that's what a lot of creativity inc about is about is how he views his job as really focusing on the culture just how critical that is because uh he's been blindsided in the past when uh things were not as the CEO he didn't he was preaching it he was walking the talk but he didn't have some processes in place and wasn't close enough to it to see that there was a whole segment of his employee population that was not engaged. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Yeah.
1: No, I, I totally agree with you, especially, you know, I was thinking back, the the interesting thing to me, Catmull has built such a culture that values people that even their criticism is done in a way that values people, right? So even that, the uh, I mean, they, they are, like you said, they're not shy about it, but it's not like people walk away feeling like dejected like they're terrible people. The other thing I think was interesting is that is that exact idea that parts of the culture are sort of subjective and I think that's why if I can put words in your mouth I think that's one of the reasons valuing people is such the important element because if you if you're not thinking about people valuing people and valuing people as individuals then you're not actually taking the time to see that different people have different perceptions of the organization and you want to create a culture, a culture that resonates and connects with all of them, not just what you think looks cool, um, which I think is a really interesting point about that, the importance of valuing people.
0: Right. And, and you see it in other leaders. Ed, um, uh, Alan Mulally's turnaround of Ford, um, Admiral Vern Clark, who was chief of the U.S. Navy from 2000 to 2005 – at a time when the Navy was struggling, as, as another leader, if I've uh, gotten to know Admiral Clark and his wife Connie, and they both uh, they love sailors and their families and people who serve a cause greater than self. And so, for them, um, it was um, it was important for Admiral Clark. He wanted to reconnect with the enlisted community because the Navy was not achieving its first term reenlistment rate of its goal of thirty eight percent, and um, it would. Admiral Clark was concerned about its effect on the Navy's performance and so he made changes to the culture which resulted in an increase up to about 58 percent from under 38 percent. It's a huge increase in about 18 months that the Navy experienced so uh, President Clinton picked the right Chief of the Navy when he promoted uh, Admiral Clark from Commander of the Atlantic Fleet to be the Chief, um, chief of Navy Operations.
1: So, yeah, and you brought up a really interesting point there about sort of not just – I mean, Catmull was that way and Pixar sort of was always kind of that way. But you brought up a really interesting point that sometimes uh, it, most organizations, I would say, don't value this type of thing. And you can walk into an organization like the Navy and see that culture is is valuing people maybe be that. It's not a connection culture. It's a very minimal part of it. I think you see it in, more often in sort of for-profit. Why does it seem like something about – is it the hierarchy? Is it just organizational life? Why is it so often people aren't focused on this idea of building culture?
0: Well, you know it's interesting. I do see it in I'm glad you brought that up because um, you go into cultures, like two cultures that I see are similar. Um, a lot of healthcare cultures, people are very fired up from a vision standpoint. They know they they're on the front lines. They see they're helping people every day, but it's because they don't get the value part right or the the voice part right that the culture they're in, the enthusiasm they have for their work because of the vision, how it's helping people, is sucked out of them (laughs) because they don't get the value part right and they don't get the voice part right. You see that at places. um, I've seen it at places that are very inspiring from a vision standpoint, like hospitals. um, uh, NASA has had some of those issues. Uh, you know, very openly in in the space shuttle accidents, there there were there was information in the organizations that um, didn't get to the decision makers, so that they could make changes, and it resulted in two disasters. Uh-huh. So, it's really important to get the not only the vision part right, but the value and the voice part right.
1: Yeah. I, I totally agree, and not, not only from a standpoint of starting when you're building culture, but also when you need to turn an organization around culture. Like the Navy, culture is a vital sort of thing to look at. So the book, the manual, if you will, on doing that, Mike's new book, Connection Culture, I want to encourage people to check that out. And I want to switch from uh, books to Mike and ask you a question, actually two questions. First is still about books. What are you reading right now?
0: Well, I've been uh, chipping away at Powers of Two, and I know you've had Josh Shank on your program. One yeah. of our
1: more popular interviews, by the way, but I'm sure you can dethrone him. It'll be fine.
0: <laughs> well, I, I uh, met Josh some years ago when he was living in the East Coast, because I live in Connecticut, not too far away from where Josh was in Brooklyn. And we met up. I really loved his book um, about Lincoln, um, Lincoln's Melancholy. Um, book and it's been exciting to read his latest book Powers of Two and I'm I'm glad you had a chance to interview him.
1: Yeah it was one of my favorite interviews and obviously obviously that idea of collaboration and inside of that connection is an idea that resonates with with me from my book and and I'm always sort of intrigued by those ideas and Powers of Two is a great one for that Um, so this this book is uh, it's out you finished writing it right but by no means are you finished I know you have probably got things down the pipe what are you working on what's next for you?
0: Well, we've been doing in recent years more employee engagement surveys. Um, We not long ago finished an employee engagement survey in uh, 16 languages for a global organization. And um, we're also doing just interventions where there are relationship issues. Uh, I'll be doing a lot of work just promoting the book. I'm writing a lot of articles that are coming out in response to the, the media's response to the new book. Speaking at um, the Association for Talent Developments conference that has 10,000 people from 80 countries coming into Orlando. No pressure in May. <laughs> So well, I think we're speaking to maybe about six or seven hundred somewhere around there. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's the near term what we'll be focusing on. and then we're thinking about an, what's our next book after that that we, we hope to get out in a couple of years and probably looking at um, connection culture from a national standpoint and how important that is.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that's an, I love that you brought up the Navy because I think that's an important thing is how do we, how do we make governance work better with connection? And then how do we even just connect communities and create those culture? All I think are really important questions. So we'll be looking out for that in the meantime, Mike, uh, the book again, connection culture and Mike, thank you so much for joining us inside the leader lab again.
0: Thank you, David. Always a pleasure.